internet now then and shall be all pleasure no end to it but an eternal beginning why are you crying i'm pregnant and so it ends. My name is Matthew Kroll. And I'm a very pregnant Shahir Dow. And this is the only podcast about movies, specifically the 1971 specialty <laughs> that Shahir has been talking about and fans have requested, The Devils. Well, one fan in particular. Uh, Millions of fans <laughs> have requested. So on Twitter, we got a request from, uh, her handle is at Ray. Uh, asking us to check out The Devils by Ken Russell, specifically with the question, what the fuck did I just watch? And I wouldn't mind you guys checking it out. Um, Thanks. I was excited about this. <laughs> well, you you went and like bought books about it. And like, did you have two books about it here. You I, came over with the British release DVD. I didn't read any of that. I just, I'm just slamming it down just as a, just as a method of intimidation. Oh, I got it. Podcast. Oh, no, it worked. It worked. I, didn't, I didn't read anything. Because I watched the film you gave me and made me watch and Ray made me watch. So if you like Ray and you want to get in touch with us with a request, do so at onlymoviepodcast at gmail.com or on Twitter at onlymoviepod. You can also check out our brand spanking new website, onlymoviepodcast.com or check us out on Facebook where again we're still arguing about Marvel movies uh, forever forever and ever yeah. Doctor Strange is coming out reviews yes. are starting to drop it's going to be interesting yes uh, but Matt The Hi. Devils 1971 This is this the oldest film we've done um ooh. this might be it could be. It could be the old. I'll have film. to go through. I'll go through the back catalog, but uh, it could be. It could very well be. Forty-seven years old. This film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you gave it to me on uh, the old uh, you, you region two <laughs> disc that I had to bust out my old uh, my old region free player. Have you had you heard of this film before? Uh, no, 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 I had not. Not no, before no. Ray had suggested it, and then you fell down into the rabbit hole. Yeah, I did fall down into the rabbit hole. Like you said, I brought a bunch of books. So the way I saw this film is that I was given a bootleg copy amongst um, a series of films on a, on a Blu-ray some sure. many years ago. And I watched it and I, was, I thought it was pretty astounding. I was, I was pretty surprised by it because the only context I'd been given about it was a banned film. And here's a little thing about me, which is that I was um, at one point contemplating doing my PhD on the history of censorship in cinema. Okay. Um, I, I, it's, a, it's an area I'm very, very interested in. Um, I've given talks about uh, censorship. I'm um, fairly well read on the subject and wanted to explore it to, to much further. There, there's all sorts of really weird anecdotes about censorship. I give you, um, and here's just one quick one. Give me one. You say is, there's a bunch of them. Well, here's uh, in New Zealand, uh, the movie Ulysses. Oh, it's, it's a New Zealand anecdote. Well, this is and this was no. this was reported in Time Magazine uh, in the United States when it happened. Uh, but the movie Ulysses was was censored in New Zealand in a really unusual way which is that in the late 70s, they decided, you know, an adaptation of James Joyce's Ulysses was coming out and they and they want, they, they decided this was high art, so it right. needed to be seen. Sure. But it had the utterance, the first utterance of the word fuck in it. Oh. And so censors were kind of baffled, like, what to do with that and how are we going to deal with that? And the way New Zealand censors came up with it was kind of unusual, which is they decided, okay, the general public can see this movie, but men and women can't see it together. So literally, they would have an audience divided on one side with men and one on the other side with women. Usually, um, the theater was stacked so that the upper level was women and the lower level was men. And that's just one of a bunch of stories of, of censorship that I think is really interesting. Censorship is weird. It, nine times out of ten, it just calls more attention to the thing you're supposedly not trying to call attention to. But not in this particular case. So Ken Russell's The Devils, if uh, a film about a uh, the 1630s in in a small town of Loudon, France, where uh, I, a, I have the description from IMDb if you want it. Uh, let me let me let me see if I can mumble <laughs> my way through it if I if you if you if I can because I'm I'm so well versed in it now having read two books on the subject right. and seen the film. This twice. is your show. Go. Um, a small town in uh, provincial France where a uh, a convent of Ursuline nuns are succumbed to possession by the supposed devil in the form of a very um, very masculine priest by the name of Urban, Urban Grandier, uh, played by the late, great Oliver Reed. Um, and their form of possession is gyrating and sexually jumping around um, as a way of suggesting that, that Urban Grandier has possessed them. And and in the true story, uh, you know, and there's spoilers for the film. 
Urban Grande was burned to the stake for the crime of demonic possession. You hear that? He just spoiled the 1971 film for you. And what, with that in mind, I'm going to say this. We, we are going to spoil this film to, uh, to a great degree right off the bat, and I've already done it, but this is a true story, so you'll find it out. And the film is very, very old. But one thing I do want to say is everyone should listen to this episode without worrying about that because this film is actually really hard to come across and for reasons that we'll get into in a little bit. Um, it is very difficult to get your hands uh, on a copy of this film. Um, Did Ray say how she got a hold of it? Like what, what, who showed it to her or why she was No, walking? no, I did ask her that, but I, I, we didn't get an answer. Okay, on that well, one. Ray, if you, you let us know, I'm, I'm curious how you came about this. Yeah, because we, uh, I had to buy a copy uh, on eBay and it was a British uh, Region 1, uh, Region 2 DVD. Two. Um, which is very difficult to play. So even if you can get a copy of the DVD, uh, it's hard to, to actually play it. Now, there are bootleg copies, but the problem is, is that this film has undergone severe censorship and it has never been reinstated. So the, the complete cut is not available. Um, there is uh, the, the, the film critic in the UK, uh, Mark Kermode, has been championing releasing a cut that he did in 2004 where he found certain scenes that had been excised from the film. Uh, but unfortunately, Warner Brothers, who owns the rights to the film, uh, will not permit him to do so. So, Matt, the version that you saw yes. did not have certain scenes that I'm going to talk about later on. Great. Um, and so the, I, I have a particular interest in film censorship. Um, so that's, that's one of the things, th that's the thing that I'm most interested in with this film. Um, I'm not a particular champion of the film itself, though I do think it is masterfully made. I guess it's just not one of those films that captured my imagination. Other than when I saw it for the first time, I thought, wow, this is, this is actually a pretty terrific film. And it's amazing to me that this is a censored film. I, uh, I mean, just sort of first thoughts about the entire thing. I think it does a lot of stuff. It's, it's almost like a preamble for a lot of sort of technique and whatnot. Like it seems like it, it the techniques they use cinematography, a couple other things feel more, uh, current than a 1971 film from time to time. Yeah. Um, so that stuff I was very impressed with. Um, but well, yeah, what did you, I mean, like you, you're coming to this completely fresh and I'll talk about what the the history of this film and what sure. people think about it. But but what do you think about it? I mean it. I mean the first thing I noticed straight up was it basically had the like the visual style and the pacing and the and the way the script was written as if it was a play. Right. Uh, it felt very stage like, which isn't a bad thing. It's just one of those things that I adjust to after the first five or ten minutes. I was like, oh, okay, this is what I'm watching. Right. Um. It it felt very like stage, even like to the point, and and not this isn't a detriment to it because it's consistent, and as you know, consistency is king in my in my world. So like the sets seemed like sort of play sets, and like it, it, but like they all seemed like they fit. It just seemed like oh, now we're in the nunnery, and this is the thing they wheeled out to be the. I don't. I just felt it, it felt. It's very, built. it's it's highly, it's a very highly stylized yes. film. And the sets were actually built by uh, director Derek Jarman before, oh, he wow. became, before he became known as, as a famous director. Shouts out. Um, so then, yeah. So I would say uh, the, oh, and so for the shock value and the censorship value, like there's shocking stuff in this. I get it. Uh, and there's stuff that, um, it, it, it's interesting when we get into sort of what's the point of the movie, right? Well, which we'll talk about in a little bit. Um, okay. That like I kept going back and forth and I'll tell you where I landed at the end. I'm like, are they just doing this to do it? Like all the shocking shit they're doing. Are they just doing that shit to be able to get a rise out of people or get people to get sort of publicity for this thing to be quote censored? And I don't I'll, I'll get into sort of what I thought about that. So I, I can see why the PTB powers that be uh, sort of <laughs> did what they did. Uh, but central today. Yeah, I know. Right. Yeah. Uh, what else did I think about this? Oh, so it was, Oh, so like it moved at a good pace. Uh, and overall I really liked that the picture it sort of painted and it's not painted, I think nearly enough in my headspace, but as how it's basically the government using religion to further its agenda. Mm -hmm. And I think, that's another reason why I think even beyond the shocking scenes of sexual promiscuity and, and some, some religious iconography being defiled. Uh, I think that another thing, another sort of version, and maybe you can fill me in on this here, but the censorship is also probably for the way it painted governments handling religion to do fucked up shit. No. <laughs> well then they're dumb because that would be the main reason why I would not like fucking vaginas. 
That's not the reason they censored it. And, and in fact, the reason they censored it is still hotly debated to this day. Um, but there, there, are, there are many, many reasons they censored it. Um, and we will talk about that in t- to some degree. I, here's, here's something I'm going to read you from uh, Richard Krauss's book, uh, Ken Russell and the Unmaking of the Devils, uh, Raising Hell. Um, here are some reviews that came out at the time. Perfect. Uh, Charles Champlin, <laughs> not to be confused with Charles Champlin, <laughs> of the Los Angeles Times, called the film a degenerate and despicable piece of art. Uh, Judith Christ, again, appropriately named. What the fuck? Uh, in New York, I said, we can't recall our relatively broad experience, 400 movies a year for perhaps too many years, a Fowler film. Um, so, you know, and, and here's a, another thing. Iconoclast magazine called it uh, a film which had all the taste and restraint of a three-day gangbang. Um, and publications <laughs> like Harry and Baltimore bizarrely called it Goebbels and Drag. Uh, all right. So this was, uh, this was not a, a popular <clears throat> film of its time. And in fact, um, the, poster, the poster for the film said, The Devils is not a film for everyone. <laughs> I mean, hey, it, uh, for, it, honesty in advertising, I will take 100% over... Uh, over things being super fucked up. But this is what Warner Brothers said about it. And this was an interesting, uh, I, I think an interesting point to take about it was that uh, they, they took out a quarter page ad in the New York magazine and they said, this is a true story, carefully documented, historically accurate, a serious work by a distinguished filmmaker. As such, it is to be hailed as a masterpiece by many. But because but, it is, dot, dot, dot. this is Warner Brothers advertising their own movie. Amazing. But because it is explicit and highly graphic and depicting the bizarre event, uh, events that occurred in France in 1634. Of course. Others will find it visually shocking and deeply disturbing. In other words, Warner Brothers were kind of saying, look, we think this film is pretty good, but most of you probably won't. Yeah. <laughs> you know? I mean, yeah. I, now the film has been championed by many a filmmaker to, sure, to sure. date. Um, Brian Singer has come out and talked about how much he loves it. Guillermo del Toro is, is so passionate. Oh, I'm about sure it. he's all over this thing. He, he he says that he watches. He tries to watch it at least once a week, or at least scenes from it once a week. Um, and he owned a VHS copy of it and watched it and watched it. He said he definitely watched it once a week before he became a you know like a very busy guy. <laughs> Um, That's weird. He, I mean, I guess it's, yeah, I mean, it makes thinks, sense. He thinks this is Russell's best film. Now, you got to understand the context of Ken Russell as well. Ken Russell was coming off a D.H. Lawrence adaptation, Woman in Love, where he was nominated for an Academy Award. So he was sure. considered the kind of um, merchant ivory of his time, you know, like, uh, you, you know, and, and, and this was a serious film, an adaptation of an Aldous Huxley novel. Right. Um, about uh, a demonic position from, you know, from 1634. So Quote, like, demonic. Yeah, but it was kind of like, oh, we're doing, you know, like this is serious masterclass theater that's going to go on. So, you know, people aren't like looking at this film in a way that's going to be salacious. And the interesting thing that happened was that Russell actually sent Warner Brothers the script beforehand and it was completely approved. Everyone saw it, read it, was like, yep, cool. He even sent the script to the chief censor in, in Britain at the time who said, Oh, I think this is going to be good. Here are a couple of things that you should probably tweak, you know, like knowing what the the censor's job is going to be. But, you know, I think this is going to be great. And then, you know, and it had cast Oliver Reed, uh, who's just just amazing, you know, commands every scene he's in. Sure. And and Vanessa Redgrave, you know, two major actors of the time. Sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then suddenly he showed the film to both the British censors and Warner Brothers who'd financed the film. And that's when things went very wrong. I just have a hard time believing that exactly what we saw on screen uh, was written down verbatim. Like, I think I think you you could I I could take this movie if I had the time and or energy and write a script that seemed really good and like danced around stuff and maybe made it sound like it was going to be a little more coy than it was. Well, I just, the thing is, Russell, again, was kind of. Not quite at the st- you know not quite at the level of someone like Lindsay Anderson or or Stanley Kubrick. At sure, the time. Kubrick's not British, but you know moved to Britain and was kind of preeminent filmmaker. But but he was a well respected, highly regarded filmmaker. So he had no reason 
to lie about what he was going to make. And also Warner Brothers were, you know, this was his first studio film. So Warner Brothers were putting up the money for everything. And, and the set- It's not a lie, it's fibbing. <laughs> no, and the set that you're talking about was the most expensive, biggest set ever built in Pine Studios at the time. Huh. So this was not a small production. Everyone knew what was going on. Like, for example, the, there's notes in uh, Richard Krause's books of what they talked about when the nuns were, you know, told that this is what they're going to have to do in the scenes, you know. So they were press releases sent out. Every, you know, like people were talking about this film as it was being made. But suddenly, I think, the th- and, and remember also 1971, this was just a couple of years before The Exorcist, around the same time as A Clockwork Orange came out. Um, yeah. So people were used to this idea that cinema was getting risky. It was getting dangerous, you know. There were films coming out, um, that we're going to be taking chances. Uh, you know, the other one is Sam Peckinpah's Straw Dog. Right. Um, you know, the, and remember, just a few years later, The Exorcist came out, released by Warner Brothers, which had a young girl masturbating with a crucifix saying, Jesus can fuck me in hell. Um, so the idea that this film... now, th- well, that, that, So that kind of brings me to my other point of like why things are censored, and I know we'll get into it, but like, so there's a bunch of stuff sort of similar to that here, um, but... That's why I thought, oh, maybe it was the sort of the government bashing that really like was the real true reason, even though they're like, no, there's boobies in this. We have to censor it. Like, I, I, Actually, the thing that they had the most problem with is pubic hair. It, it, honestly, it's a note that that Ken Russell got was like cut all the pubic hair out of the film, which you could do digitally now. But back then they had to actually just cut the scenes out of the film. They had to color it by hand. They had to animate I, it by hand. They got are, Walt Disney there <laughs> are actually, there Imagineers. Are, there are actually versions of the film where they pinked out the pubic hair. Uh, very rudimentary painting uh, that they did frame by frame. But I believe the reason why this film is censored and is, there's a couple of old wives tales about why this film is censored. One, one that I love that I don't believe is true in any way, shape or form, but I think is kind of fun to think about is that apparently the print of the film is sitting in a Warner Brothers vault. And when you open it, there's a note from a very, very senior executive on it saying, this film shall never see the light of day. And every Warner Brother executive that has come since that period has opened the film, you know, because the film has been requested to be released, you know, almost every year since it's been made, um, has opened the vault and seen that note and said, oh, we're not messing with that. Um, so that the, I don't know if I buy that. Uh, it's, an, it's an old wise the, the reason I think it's, it's um, complicated is that films like The Exorcist, for example, offer up a fairly singular view about what is good and what is evil. You know, there is the devil and there is God. And there are, and and in in the existence for example, the supernatural exists. So there is God and there is the devil. The thing about the devils is there is no element of supernatural play here. What what the film is really about is the way in which people manipulate faith in order to control people. Yes. So Good and evil is 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 not a binary that this film works in, and I think you know another interesting thing is that the the good guy in this film is kind of a scumbag. He's not a hero. He does things that are well. Uh, he does he does things. Look, in certain circles, he's a hero. For instance, he fights for the town. He fights to have the not have the king of France knock down their barricades because they were kind of doing that all over the time, to, like after the war or whatever. That that's actually that. That's something I didn't find in Huxley's novel, so I think it's a, a little bit of a fabrication on Russell's part to kind of like to make his, him more heroic in the movie. No, to make the actual reasoning for why they're trying to persecute Urban Grandier a little more relevant. I, I think that's right. So basically, I mean, I, I want to try to. I know we've been sort of dancing around it, and I want to try to say very sort of as simply as possible. Then we'll dive deep into sort of what happens here. <laughs> uh, so again, spoilers. But basically, this this very handsome priest Grandier, mm-hmm. uh, he. Uh, he's a womanizer. He womanizes all over the place. Like the quote we said in the beginning, he's sleeping with a young lady and then she gets pregnant and he basically leaves her. He's kind of a scumbag. Uh, and then uh, the as the king of France is trying to like basically control all of France by uh, in the film, they're doing this. I don't know how real this is, but, the you know, they take these towns that have all their garrisons and barricades and whatnot, and they're destroying them so they can be more easily controlled and not their own sort of like individual states that would like maybe go against the crown if they didn't agree with them. What, what they were primarily concerned with is, and this was in Huxley's novel, is a Protestant uprising. So there's sure. the Catholics and the Protestants. And so they're worried about- they could use these, they could use these towns as sort of like 
like a beachhead sort of nonsense. And the thing about Ludon was that it had a it had a very mild Protestant. That's uprising. the town that this all takes place in. Yeah, and so and Ludon had a very mild Protestant uprising, and to the point where Ludon had a fairly harmonious coexistence between Catholic and Protestants. Right. So the the mayor of this town dies, or the whoever is in charge, and he leaves, weirdly enough, this priest who everyone respects, even though he's kind of a womanizer. Like, everyone in the town likes Grandier, except for, obviously, like, the father of the woman he impregnates and all that jazz. Yeah. So then he goes and he stops the demolition from happening because the king didn't have his edict with him, and then this starts, like, a downward spiral of how can the government agents, this baron, a couple other people, how can they tear this man apart enough where the whole town will turn against him and make it seem like that whatever they're going to do is fine? And they do that by using the thing that he's kind of a scumbag for against him, and that is being a womanizer. Like, all these nuns in this convict, they always, like, look out, like, to see how beautiful Grandier is and, like, you know, his his uh, his, his his luscious facial hair and whatnot. <laughs> and um, uh, it's, it's interesting. So they find out about that, and then they use that, and that's how they sort of, like, they whip these nuns up into a fervor about this and kind of not – see, that's the weird part. They don't convince them that they're – that they're um possessed, but like it's almost like a weird mob mentality that slowly forms through uh what's her name's nun the the Redgraves. Yeah, sister. Vanessa Redgrave's sister Janine. Sister Jean. Oh Jean? Yeah. Janine. Yo, Janine. <laughs> uh <laughs> well, um, I, I actually think it's a little bit more of a coincidence that that, that occurred. So uh, Huxley has this great passage I'm gonna read. Uh, like I this is the first Huxley novel that I've ever read. Uh, and it is beautiful. I, I am now uh, a fan of Huxley. I think, uh, I, you know, I've long been overdue reading. And what's the, the title of this book, this particular one you're talking the, about? The Devils of Ludon. Thank you. And that's that's the what the film is based upon, as well as a, a play that was written at the time. Um, but uh, I, I'm long overdue to read A Brave New World in the Island now as well. But Huxley, um, basically, he this is a true story that he discussed you know, found out about and, and just thought about it for a long period of time. And so what his novel is trying to do, it's a, tr you know, it's a true distillation of what happened. And he's trying to figure out the historical psychological context for which this would occur. Because the thing that happened is that what came first is the hysteria about Grandier and sister Jean was kind of, um, had some form of psychosis, but she also lived in a she also lived in a time where female hysteria was not widely understood. So her sexual um, thoughts about Grandier were were misinterpreted as hysteria. And because she's also a celibate nun living in a convent who has this sort of she's a hunchback. She yeah she has this deformed hunch. Yeah. Um. She she basically starts believing that Grandier is possessed, even yes. though what's really happening is that she is infatuated with him, sexually infatuated with him, but doesn't know how to deal with that. Yeah. And then what happens- Thanks, history. Well, thanks. Yeah, thanks our lack of understanding. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. And what happens is, is that, Grand in the true story at least, Grandier offended Cardinal Richelieu, uh, who you see in the film as being uh, Louis XIII's right-hand- man um, trying to take over, you know, to, to, to instigate this thing. But what had actually happened is Grandier had just offended him. And to offend the cardinal was, for lack of a better term, a cardinal sin. Whoa. <laughs> and so the cardinal uh, alongside Lubardemont uh, had, you know, basically seized upon this notion that these women felt that they were being possessed and, and stoked the fire of that a little bit. And eventually, a little bit. eventually the hysteria grew into something much bigger to the point at which they hired an exorcist An exorcist came about. They would have public exorcisms where the, where the nuns were encouraged to writhe around sexually to, to, because, because essentially they were, you know, they were being told, well, if you are being possessed by the, you know, by the devil, then you must demonstrate that to us. And so suddenly these nuns who were all very celibate and well-to-do and, 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 you know, very proper were basically given carte blanche to act, you know, completely sexually free. And so they took, you know, they seized upon the opportunity to do it. And, and all of this happened without any meeting between Grandier and Sister Jean. She'd never, they never actually met. Right. So, you know, like the, 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 the story was, is that Gr she asked uh, Grandier to become the parishioner for the convent. And he's like, nah, I'm busy. And, nah, he's busy. And he actually like, the reason she asked was that she, he tossed over a, a bunch of roses into their convent one day as he was walking past. Um, 
But Huxley had this great passage about why people were obsessed with Grundy. Now, I think I think it's perfectly encapsulated in the in the casting of Oliver Reed. I think he just owns every scene he's in, plus the dialogue that he's given is just amazing. That's a lot of good speechifying here. I, I I think it's just beautiful. And and the thing that startled me on this viewing was how good the writing was. Uh, but but Huxley writes, how fascinating, even to the most respectable of ladies, is the professional seducer, the hardened breaker of hearts. In the imaginations of the female parishioners, Grandia's amorous exploits took on a her- took on heroic proportions. He became a mythical figure, part Jupiter, part Satyr, bestially lustful, and yet therefore divinely attractive. And compound this with the idea that he's a priest who shouldn't be shouldn't sleeping. be doing this. Yeah, he's kind of just basically the bad boy of Ludon rocking around. He's the Fonzie of of this French time. I mean, he's he's getting you know women knocked up. He's marrying women in secret. He's having affairs, bumping that jukebox. Yeah, he's just the coolest guy in town. But it's it's interesting as well is that is that for uh, you know, and we still see this today that for a man to be amorously um, sexual is is a grace, whereas for a woman to do it is is a detriment. Um, so I think that you know, which is not right course it's not right but it's it's the world we live in you know right um you'd only have to look to this year's election to see some of that playing around thank god it's almost fucking over (laughs) yeah so you know like i while i think you know the other side of that is i think russell's adaptation of the book in in uh, adding the streamlining of like the king wanting to tear down the walls of this town sure. is actually a really smart invention in order to get us to understand. No, I think why so too. Let me ask you this. So there's one part of this we're kind of leaving out and I thought was a little bit, um, I, I felt tacked on and I didn't know if it was historically accurate. Cause Oh, side note, this movie, just so you know, I know we're jumping back between the book and the story and the history and the whatever, like blah, blah, blah. This movie opens with a, the most blatant, text Mm -hmm. i have ever seen at the beginning of a based on a true story film it's like everything in this film is fact this that and the other thing like it's like a three sentence long thing about how true this movie is and i was like and after i watched the movie i was like whoa now here's the thing i read a lot of um uh novels before i see the films and and try to compare what went wrong this adaptation is if we if we take huxley's novel as historical Truth. truth sure this adaptation is really, really close. But how do we know that's true? We don't. Or we do. Well, well he, Huxley does famously did a lot of research and he cites his sources, okay, so cool. it's, it's a historical fiction. It's close as we're going to get. And, um, and the no, and the film is very, very close. It's a very good adaptation. So, so this is my this is my question that I thought felt tacked on, like maybe like the walls and the in the city sort of the 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 political the very clear political goal that they sort of tacked in yeah. was uh, Grandier's eventual love interest slash wife, Madeleine de Bru. Yes, true story. Really. A true story, and and to the point, and, and so, the, the reason we know it's true as well is that uh, he married her in secret. Um, so he falls in love, basically. Just so you know, so so we're not just talking through this without you because you might not have seen this. Uh, probably there not. There's a woman that that Grandier falls, falls in love with after giving her mother the last rites. Uh, also kicking out the comic relief of the film, the doctor and the chemist, and a crocodile, and a crocodile. <laughs> Jesus, that was freaking ridiculous. Uh, old medicine was fucked up. Yeah. Um, and he falls in love with her kind of, this is something I thought was a poor move in, not a poor move, poor, the only poorly done relationship in this film was the, how, how quickly, uh, her and Grandier's relationship is like all of a sudden, boop, they're in love. Like yeah. it was very like, okay, this happened. It w- I think the thing that's interesting there is you can understand why she's attracted to yes. Grandier, but you're not sure why he's attracted. Why to this it, it, it like, it, they didn't even give it like one of the grand speeches to like, have you get on Grandier's page. It was just sort of like, oh, now I'm in love with you so much. It's like, great. From a visual point of view, I think the thing that I took away that made it work for me is that she is the she is the essence of purity in this film. She is innocence. She is she is true faith. Yes, and 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 that's why he's attracted to her. But, but not, she came she came to do like sexy confession, just like every other woman did to him too. So she but she confesses in a way that's honest and true. She kind of says, "I love you," and and I have feelings for you. Where everyone else kind of dances around it. Yeah, I don't know. I just I felt like it was it was not forced, just too quick. Yeah. Uh, but but so when I when I experienced that sort of part of it, I was like, that feels tacked on to help us like him more. But I guess okay, that was it's that's a true, it's a true there thing. we go. And and he wrote the thing about it was that obviously uh, a priest having uh, a wife is bad is bad. But he actually wrote a pamphlet about uh, how false celibacy for priests should be and and how it's uh, unnecessary 
And he actually addressed it to his concubine, which was Madeline DeBrew. Oh, gee, if only there was a film that I didn't particularly like that told the story about that story. Spotlight? Yeah. <laughs> uh, I heard you on the Oscar Watch podcast uh, to- discussing that. And Look, and, and I don't I, know why I, people invite me back to keep talking about it. I held, I held, I was holding onto a table and parts of it broke off as I listened to you guys <laughs> talk about that film. But anyway, <laughs> moving along. Uh, yeah, so that's true. What are other questions that you might have? What are the things that you wanted to talk about in terms of the film? So, I mean, let's talk about, I, I mean, I'm not, not going in particular sort of order, but let's talk about the portrayal of Louis Thirteenth. Right. So Russell, Ken Russell might be famously known for his, uh, for his uh, adaptation of the Who's album, Tommy. And um, Goddamn pinball wizard. Yeah, the pin, you know, short plays a mean pinball. Um, so Russell is a fabulous, uh, you know, like he is someone who can be surreal in cinema. Yes. And I think, you know, like there's two examples of that in this film. The opening. Uh, the opening, which I think is just beautiful. It's great. It's, it's like a giant play. Basically, King Louis is doing an adaptation of um, The Birth of Venus. The Birth of Venus. On for the stage. Cardinal. Yeah, for the and Cardinal. And for the, like a big group of people, the Cardinals. And, but, it's, but it's also playing on, on Louis' sexuality at that point as well. The other, the, the, well, th- there's that and there's the crocodile, which I think is just hilarious and kind of a wonderful piece of like just madness. So what happens is when, when, uh, there, these, the, this doctor and the chemist that sort of show up and are kind of like side villains in a weird way by the end of it, they're they comic just, relief. As yeah. Well. Uh, they're trying to cure this woman from the plague. Yeah. Uh, and so they're doing the whole thing. They're doing a little bit of leeches, but then they like put hornets and no, yeah, hornets. hornets and glasses. And then like Grandier, when he comes in to give her last rites, cause, uh, Matt, Matt, what was her Madeline Debrou. Yeah. Thank you. Um, calls him from the street. Like, you know, she's going to die. She's whatever. Uh, then he, he comes and he's like, what are you doing? Like, there aren't any leeches here. You're just putting random. And he like, is this a crocodile? And he pulls it like she's lying on top of a dead crocodile. And then he throws it out the window. And then eventually, after the last rites are read, he walks outside and the father of the woman he impregnated or like a bit ago, but he just found out. Yeah. Um, uh, she, he tries to attack Grandier with a sword and Grandier eventually fights back with the crocodile. And I'm like. I thought that scene was hilarious, and I thought it was. I thought I, it, it was funny, but it didn't fit. I I think to me it played on the absurdity of the, the film that was trying to get, that the, the film was trying to get at, and I it, I think this film is a film that takes itself oddly seriously, except for moments that happen like that. Yeah, and it's well, almost like this is what I got from it. I'm not saying it's bad. I, I laughed and I was like, what the fuck? And it didn't like take any enjoyment away from me, but it did take. Uh, it took some it took some teeth out of it for me with the crocodile oddly enough so like it it was just like oh well like this scene is existing in the same scene where um uh janine sister janine is uh having a fantasy about uh grandier being jesus and like drinking his blood and like getting like some real serious shit licking his wounds so like but the thing is, so I, the reason I laughed at that is that the thing that I was kind of thinking about was Grandier's crocodile tears. Uh, and I thought that that was kind of a visual metaphor for that. That might, you know, it's a bit loose, but it could be. The other scene that happens later on in the film. The crows? Uh, yeah, with the crows where King Louis is basically uh, shoot, you know, like out hunting. And Not out hunting. He's sitting on a, like a, on a pedestal and then making firing. Uh, yeah. He's basically making prisoners of some kind run in crow outfits like away from him. And he's just shooting them with pistols as they as they go. I'm pretty sure Terry Gilliam might have ripped that off in the life of Brian or something. Yeah. <laughs> or, or, it uh, felt Monty very Python. Monty Python. Yeah. And I, I just. Yes. They those things are strikingly absurd. Louis the 13th might be my favorite character in this movie. Well, because he has that great scene later on. Yeah. Um. But but yeah, I I can see how those you know like and he's I can, the Doctor Frankenfutter. And I think, of this movie. <laughs> and I think the thing is is that Ray's question, which was like, "What the fuck did I just watch?" Certainly alludes to scenes like that. You know, like like what is going on in this movie where a man is being attacked and defending himself with a crocodile, and where another you know like the king is. But then at the same time, nuns are being like probed and like. Which 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 happened? Ah. Uh, it was called uh, uh, an exorcism by enema, uh, which is graphically detailed in Aldous Huxley's book. Um, but yeah, so there there is a certain level of absurdity to this film. I, I want to point out uh, just basically raise questions to us that she'd asked us. Sure, which I think we've actually already answered. Was have we uh, have yeah. we answered anything? Well, her her main question was: Is this a true story? And was oh. Grandier a, a real historic figure? And how much of this film do you think has been dramatized for the sake of an entertaining story? Okay, so we got those. I, I think the only thing that that 
it did happen, but not quite connected to the story was the tearing down of Ludan's walls. Um, Cause that, and that's another thing. So I liked it. I liked that aspect of the movie, him being sort of like a hero to his town in a weird way, despite the fact he was a, a womanizer and not, she shouldn't have because he was a fucking it wasn't priest. wasn't quite that in the, in, in, in real life, in Huxley's story. No, no yeah. I know. So like, but I liked, I, I think it's a good way to actually like, because it, it painted it. It just gave him, it gave the, it made more of a case for him than if he had just like pissed off the Cardinal because he, then it was almost like a coalition of people. He had he, like, he had pissed off, came together to sort of whip up this thing. So there was the Cardinal. Yeah. There was the Baron who was trying to actually tear down the walls. There was the father who he fought with the crocodile of the woman he impregnated. There were the doctor and the chemist that he basically said were quacks and to get the fuck out. Mm-hmm. And then there was that other priest guy, Father Mignon, Father Mignon who, um, who I don't remember how exactly he wronged. So uh, he was actually the cousin of Monsieur Tricant. So he. I see. So, that was not clear. But also, um, he. In, in the true story, he's actually 85 years old. And in this film, he's kind of like Super 30, young. 30 something. Well, he's got a fuck. Yeah. Well, and he um, he basically took a, he took on the role of being the parishioner for the convent when uh, Grandier didn't uh, turn it down. Yep. Um, so, yeah. The, and, and basically, and they talk about basically those are the Carmelites. Uh, a group of people who had come together in order to bring about Grandier's downfall. And delicious caramel. <laughs> exactly. Actually, every time I read that word, I was like, Carmelites? Uh, did they have anything to do with caramel? Because I'm really hungry <laughs> reading this. <laughs> New from Wonka. <laughs> um, now so, in enema flavor. But the thing, the thing that I, you know, like you have to remember as well is that, is that this was a highly politicized time where religion was on the one hand by the elites known to be false, but on the other hand by the people known to be the reason for existence. Sure. So you had this kind of like swirling mass of people kind of like coming together around this idea of religion. On the one hand, people understanding that it's just made up. And on the other hand, people believing that this is the way we live our lives. And so the slight that that Grandier had made against the people was also a slight against God in the eyes of Richelieu, who was the cardinal who was all powerful. Gotcha. And who had God on his side kind of thing. So so it was kind of like, you know, like me saying, I don't believe in God right now is not seen as much. But if I said that in public in 1634 France, I would be seen as a heretic and someone to be taken down and I would be publicly denounced. And your accent would be very confusing to them. To the French, uh, no doubt. And, and in this case, the film, indeed, because it's all in English. Um, but, you know, so I think, I think the, the addition of tearing down the walls adds a kind of like very tangible political dimension. You know what I liked? I just remembered this. So the plague's going on, and before he yeah. goes or whatever, there's literally a, a people with a cart, a dead bodies yelling, "Bring out your dead!" Which I know that that, that Monty Python must have ripped that off from them, right? Yeah, bring out your. I, I'm sure. Ringing the bell, bring out your dead, bring out your dead, and then the Gilliam, whole "I'm not dead yet." Gilliam talks about it. He, he actually is is referenced in Krauss's book, and he says that I, I wish I'd stolen those ideas from Ken Russell because he did them better than I did. Uh, but you know, like we did come up with them organically, but I can certainly see why. Yeah. It's so, I was like, yes, but I think, you know, the thing about Russell is Russell has a sense of humor and, and the way someone described him in Krauss's book is that he's an intellectual who like pulls down his pants and shows you his butt, you know, like that's his, he's, he's very smart and you can see that in the film, Sure, but he's also someone that enjoys indulgence. He was known to be a man, (laughs) but enjoys ass play. Yeah. He enjoys like poking things. Fun thing. The other thing to note about Russell that I think it turns up in the film as well is he was a deeply religious man. He was he was uh, 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 um, a Catholic and you know who truly believed. And I think the thing was though he was also an intellectual who decided who doesn't believe that things should be taken as doctrine and things and right. ideas of Catholicism should be played with. So he wasn't someone who who was like you know he was deeply he was religious himself and he believed in a god and a catholic god but he didn't believe that that it was all prim and proper sure. sex was part of the the existence of god and he liked to inject that into his film so with enemas well that that is I'm just, every time you're saying something that remotely goes back to it i have to call it it, it, it did actually happen and it's and it's, it's deep, fucking terrifying it, so what matt's talking about is that when sister jean is 
is decided to be uh, possessed by the devils. They they hire another high priestess, uh, priest uh, Bar Bar, who looks like uh, a rock star in this movie. He's wearing these sort of like John Lennon glasses. Um, he and- looks like a younger version of the villain in The Crow. Okay, that's a deep cut that I that I probably w- won't remember. I've seen. Also, the looks like my uncle when he was younger. Very strange. He Let's looks, just keep going. To me, he looks like he wandered off the set of the Who, uh, off Tommy. Yeah, you know, like he looks like he should be in that film. But I, but I kind of dig that kind. Again, it's it's part of that sort of anachronistic um, visual style that this film has, and he performs uh, uh, a colonic on on Sister Jeanne, um, an an enema. Um, which is decidedly painful, obviously, and and completely unnecessary. But she goes along with it because she also she believes that she is possessed by the the demon Grandier, and and she and you know, what the, the fuck. The thing about this, the the hysteria that these women encounter, and the thing that I found really interesting in the book was the way that position, demonic position, was really codified by the church. You know, like they actually had rules for how you determine. If if, and they still do. And they still do. And, and you know, like the, the rules were things like uh, you had to prove that you could levitate. <laughs> you know, like you, you had to prove that that could happen. You had to prove that you could speak in tongues. Um, that one's easy. <laughs> and you also had to prove that, that if you were bled at a certain point, there would be a lack of blood. And, and the thing was, was that Grandier actually agreed to undergo all of those tests and failed them all. But they, but the way in which they believed that the devil operated was that the devil understood what their rules were, so that he could defy them anyway. So they had these rules, but if you didn't, you know, pass the rules, you could just basically forego the rules because the devil yeah. is is just an evil bastard and can do whatever he wants yeah. anyway. And they would. How go, do you know she is a witch? Exactly, and like, and like they would go into details where, like, you know, like the 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 sister Jean would would say that she had a devil inside her left nostril, and and they and were like, well, this is the sight of the devil, and you know, and they would give it a name, and it would last, and they basically created this entire mythology that had that ran through the entire covent, which is just it's crazy. That's that's in the book. I, I feel like that's one of the things that the movie doesn't really go into. How can you tell if she is made of wood? <laughs> Build a bridge out of her. <laughs> that's all I mean, look, Holy Grail does a lot of this <laughs> material, even if it's if it's coincidence, it's kind of weird. I love it. I love it. Um so I you know like I So think- so Bar comes, right? Yeah. This and I would call Bar sort of the villain if there is a, well, I mean, the, the cadre of the Carmel is, what were they called? The, the Carmelites. The Carmelites? Yeah. The uh, Brethren to the California Raisins. Um, the the Carmelites and Barr. Barr's like this sort of like rock star exorcist, but like he's just starting to like go along with it because he's, it seemed like he was getting notoriety at this point. And like he, I mean, all, all the men in this scenario in the film, and I don't know about the book or the history or whatever, but just basically like taking advantage of these women doing all of this sexual promiscuous stuff like yep. there's a part where like they were outside and like bar was like in the middle of them and he's like he, there was a moment where he like literally put up his hands like oh no what am i gonna do <laughs> yeah. uh, like it's and it, there's a scene which i don't believe you saw matt in the cut that i gave you okay um one of ray's questions, keeping things from me <laughs> yeah one of ray's questions is, is is uh what was taken out of this film but for, for because of censorship and the the one of the most infamous scenes is called the rape of christ uh, where, oh, <laughs> you know, yeah, a good title um, where uh, the nuns basically are writhing naked and sexually and they they grab a crucifix of Christ and they start masturbating on top of it. And it's called the rape of Christ. And Father Mignon climbs upon the, the church bells and watches from above and starts to masturbate as he does. And there's a there's this amazing sort of like crash zooms that go on between the rape of Christ and Father Mignon masturbating, which I'm Joe Dante is a real fan of this movie and he directed the Burbs, which I think has that same famous crash zoom when Tom Hanks uh, discovers the femur. And the other scene that was taken out again, relating to Joe Dante. So far, I don't feel like I'm missing anything. It's, it's a pretty important scene because the, the way in which it depicts the madness of this and the way, and, and, and I think the thing about, I mean, I got it. Like, I mean, look, this is what I'm saying about, and I, I haven't seen the scene, so I, I can't say if it's like super crucial, but I will say that in, 
I guess unless this is like totally historically proven that this moment happened. Yeah. I don't know if I'd need it. I got the hysteria. And, so, I, and I'm not saying you people shouldn't see something like this. I don't give a fuck. I'm saying if I was cutting this, not even from a censorship standpoint and, and, and just from like a time standpoint or a pacing standpoint or whatever, I'd be like, maybe that scene could go or maybe a different one that had similar context. I feel like I got things with that context throughout the cut that I saw. So the way I would talk about this is in reference to a movie I just watched, which uh, we're going to talk about later in the podcast, Hacksaw Ridge, which is the new Mel Gibson film. We're going to talk about that. Yeah, because the one of the things about Hacksaw Ridge is that it will be known for is that it has very, very graphic, violent war scenes. And the reason they do these really graphic, violent war scenes is to counterpoint the sort of sweetness of the beginning of the film. And okay. I think, and in the similar way, I think Russell wants to show you the depravity with which people, which with which the the nuns indulge, in order to counterpoint the faith with which um, Father uh, Grandier like keeps his faith at the end of the film when he's being burnt at the stake. Sure. And I think that's an important counterpoint. We often, I. Th- you know, one of the things that I, that, that I find fascinating about censorship, and it's one of the most obvious things, is that we have a real high tolerance for violence, but we don't have a high tolerance for sexuality. Is that a Western thing? Uh, I think it's across the globe, although you could point to other countries which have much more permissive uh, um, ideas about sexuality. Particularly, yeah. uh, you know, uh, the film that pops in mind, which is one I've talked about in terms of censorship, is Nagasi Oshima's In the Realm of the Senses, which is about... Um, people having sex while the war is going on. And it's very graphic. In okay. Detail. And I think, and it's not a film that's banned. Um, the, but, but, you know, and I think another thing, reason why this film is banned is it's very heavy on sex. It's very graphic and detailed about sex and it's very, and it's not ordinary sex either. It's, it's very, uh, yeah, I wouldn't call it. I also wouldn't call it detailed about sex. It's just, it's graphic. It's very graphic. And I think, but the thing is, again, in most Western cultures and in most forms of censorship, we are very permissive but about violence, about what? very graphic violence, but we're not permissive about sex. We tend to think, oh, we need to show violence in order to show the brutality of a scene. But we don't ever say, oh, we need to show sex in order to show the tenderness of a scene or to show how involved people are with each other. Well, yeah, because we came from the, the people that founded this country were the people that were too prude for Britain. And I think, And I think that is one of the reasons why, you know, like why... You're like, well, I get it. I don't need to see it. But we're, you know, like if we were talking about a violent scene where someone had their head decapitated, for example. No, no, you'd no. You're like, oh well, they put it in, and it really shows. I, I disagree. You're putting words in my mouth at that point. I think what I'm what I'm saying is, I got, and I'm not saying you personally. I'm saying, oh, okay, like, like generally, I, we would. Sort I would of think say, that way. yeah, I, no, I mean, it'd be the same shit. So if this is a hyper violent film, and there was one fucking crazy hyper violent scene that they cut out. I mean, like, I mean, we've talked about censorship a lot on this, but like censorship's a weird thing. It, the second someone says something is censored, mm-hmm. your gut reaction is, well, I want to see it. What the fuck? Like, but at the same time, if I put my logic hat on for either of those things from a timing standpoint, if we're talking about this particular movie, I don't think it adds or detracts I just to, to cut it out or cut out something else to put that in. I, I just... I, I'm looking at it from like an actual, like, let's construct a story and a narrative in this film. I think... Adding another scene of gratuitous whatever, mm-hmm. if it's that or whatever, is almost it's almost to the point where you're falling into your own trap you're setting. Well, again, you're you're talking about a scene that you haven't seen yet. And I think the thing that is important in that scene is the way in which they take which which they're willing to invert the teachings of Christ. You know, they literally grab the crucifix of Christ, which is the most sacred of, of images in the Catholic faith and fornicate on it. And then Father Mignon engages in it as well. So, and again, I think that counterpoints. What and then they burn Grandier. And so, they, okay. But at the end of the film, Grandier holds on to his faith. He was yep. like, God, don't leave me now. I need my faith in order to get through this. And, and what I think is interesting there is Grandier has the most faith amongst all these men. He is oh, a yeah. true believer. Uh, so, wh- so they eventually get him, right? Because all these women are signing documents saying like they were possessed and like he laid with them as a demon and like all this weird shit. Yeah. And he's like, uh, what the fuck? And he was like away, like trying to save the town at the time a lot of this was going on. And then he came back. That wasn't exactly super clear in the film either, but I got it. Yeah. And then he comes back and they arrest him and, and they go through all of his shit. Uh, one thing I thought was very interesting. So so they're in the process of arresting him and trying to prove that he's doing all this stuff. And they're just basically using like these weird fucking rules. And then when they don't work, being like the devil did it um, is they he, he speechifies so beautifully a bunch of times in this movie. And uh, there was one thing he said that I really liked. They they ransacked his home. 
and they found letters. They found letters from like long lost like loves or like whatever like women that he had courted or whatnot. Yada yada yada. And he gives a great speech, and I think it's very fun. It's very sort of true. Is that it's basically like. Well, yeah, I was young and this is how young people act. And this is what you look at when you're when you're older. You take these and you keep them so that every once in a while you can look at them and remember what it felt like to sort of be young and be reckless. No, we actually have that scene. And oh, here it is. Sick. We have also letters from women who we did not marry. <laughs> One of which appears to suggest that he committed sexual intercourse under the very roof of the church itself. For the love of Jesus Christ. If you wish to destroy me, then destroy me. Accuse me of exposing political chicanery and the evils of the states, and I will plead guilty. But what man can face arraignments on the idiocy of youth? Old love letters and other pathetic objects stuffed in drawers or in the bottom of cupboards. Things kept for a day when he would need to be reminded. But it was once loved. Isn't Oliver Reed great? Isn't he just amazing? I mean, look, he's he's one of the best actors in this film, no doubt. Um, but yeah, you don't you don't, you don't, you're not a fan. I like him. He's the most sort of grounded and 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 I want to say real character in this in this kind of cacophony of like really hyper stylized people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and stylized in the way that you'd see in a play in, right. a, in Shakespeare, like that sort of stylization, not necessarily bad, but just over the top, over the top in a good way. But I don't know. We're talking about all. Uh, I, I just think he's masterful in this scene. I, I mean, I think. Oh, he's yeah, no, 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 no. His speech. His, look, his speeches are the best part of this movie. There's no, no question. Not just his speech, but I think I think he has a real command of the screen. And he is. He well, is that's one, part of the speeches. That's what I'm saying. I'm not I, just saying the words. I'm saying like. Even the, in, in his silence, he has a real command of the screen. And I think I just I buy him as I can understand why everybody's in love with that. I, I look, I think I think he did a fantastic job acting. I think that, you know, the speeches that he delivered were great. I think they were very well written. Uh, I didn't get that, but I just took because everyone in the movie thought he was the most beautiful man alive. I was like, oh, he's the most beautiful man alive. OK, <laughs> like I get it. I, I completely 100 percent bored. And the thing, why, are you possessed by the devil? I, I am a little I have do have a little bit of a man crush on Oliver Reed right now. And I, I, I was devil to him. devil <laughs> um, say something nice about the Marvel movies. You can't. You're a demon. Okay, moving on. Uh, see, see, I proved it. Yeah. Go get him. Where's where's our fucking exorcist? So the other scene that so the rape of Christ is a major scene that was taken out, um, and there has been many attempts to revive the scene. It was thought to be lost for many years until Mark Kermode found a print of it, um, and there are many bastardized copies floating around on the internet. If you're going to watch it uh, anyway, the other scene uh, that Ray even asked about was a scene that happened at the very end of the film, which again you wouldn't have seen. Uh, but at thanks. The, you're the one that gave me the damn movie. Uh, when Lubardemont uh, sees Sister Jeanne at the very end of the film, uh, after they've burnt uh, Urban Grandier to the ground, she hands him. He hands her a memento, which was a charred femur bone. And you would have seen that part, yeah, right? Yep. What you wouldn't have seen is that after Lubardemont leaves the room. Sister Jean masturbates with it. Yeah, I probably figured that. I mean, I figured that would happen because she was basically giving herself enemas at the end of it. Yeah. Uh, and it's like, oh, well, she's now, okay, rock and roll. And it's it's a, it's a rock and roll, Janine. Beautiful scene. Oh, yeah. A beautifully disturbing scene because it's at the same time, it's also the first time she's actually met Grandier in a weird way. It's the first time she's actually been in the, like, you know, like actually. Being with him. Hashtag get boned. <laughs> yeah. So I, it's, it's, it's perverse and it's weird and it's disturbing, but it kind of sends you a reminder of how far Sister Jeanne has come at, by the end of this film. Um, or gone. Or gone, yeah. Um, uh, the scene that I, was my favorite, mm-hmm. uh, and then I, I don't know, we should probably wrap it up because we're getting a little long of the tooth, but the scene that was my favorite was Louis Thirteenth coming in when the when the orgy was like in full swing, mm-hmm. and he comes in, he's like, oh, look at all this stuff, and he has like a young kid with them. I don't know who that was supposed to be. I mean, it was one of Louis Thirteenth's young boys. boys. Uh, and he's like, don't look at the women, blah, 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 like whatever. These, these fiendish creatures. Yeah. You know, so he comes in and he them. goes to bar. He's like, I've brought something to help. 
and he has his little boxes like this contains. I got it from the deep, you know, the the treasure the blood of Christ. It has a vial of Christ's blood, and and Bear takes it and he goes over and like three or four women are like instantly cured mm-hmm. by it, and then he takes it back and he opens it up and it's empty and he just laughs at them. And we have that scene as well. What? <laughs> Father, may I try this? What is in the parchment, sir? A holy relic from the king's own chapel. A pile of the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. What effect would the close proximity of this relic have on devils such as these? You would put them to flight. At once? Immediately. Of course, I couldn't guarantee that when the relic was removed, they wouldn't return. Oh, of course not. That would be asking too much. Would you care to try? I'm free. You are most welcome, my child. So like what he kind basically of trick are you playing on us? He basically calls them all out on he's like, I know what you're doing's bullshit. But fuck it, whatever. You're well, like he's also the inst- I mean, he knows what's happening. But he's just happy. He literally proves to them and like all the people watching, like the townspeople that are watching this whole public thing, and then no one gives a shit. Now that actually happened in the novel as well, but it wasn't King Louis who did it. What happened in the novel that was really interesting was that all these bars started popping up and hotels started popping up because people turned up to watch the tourist the, attraction. Yeah. The, the tourist attraction to, to, to watch the exorcisms and, uh, and somebody turned up at one of the bars and did, and did exactly that. He said, I have a vial of Christ's blood. Will that cure the exorcism? And, and they said, yes, of course it will. And then he tried it on one of the women and she, you know, and she was supposedly cured and he was, and it proved to him that this was all bullshit and it proved to everyone around him that it was all bullshit. This didn't stop the exorcism for happening. That's why would it? Um, the possessions. Yeah. Um, so, okay, Shahir, we watched this thing. We watched, you did a ton of research. The, the, the question I'd like to ask you is beyond, beyond the censorship, mm-hmm. beyond the historical accuracy, beyond the interesting sort of footnote in history itself, should people seek out this hard to find movie and watch it? I'm going to take a line from, I'm going to, I'm going to borrow Warner Brothers line, which is the devils is not for everyone. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) It is definitely not for everyone. And, and uh, I, I certainly agree with that. I think the people that might have an interest in this are people who are religious and are interested in cinema. I think those people might have an interest in this in this film. And then the other people that I think would be interested in it are, are cinema buffs, people who are completist about cinema. Um, I think it falls into the category of films. The, the reason I like this film is, and it, this is going to sound weird, but it's a film I personally could never fathom myself making. Usually when I watch a movie, if I love a movie, I will dissect it and I'll be like, okay, this is how I would make it. I watched this film, and there are a bunch of films like this. Um, and I know I'm just using myself as a reference point, but I'm not saying that, that that's the only one. I mean, that's, that's never happened before. So, but, but but what I'm saying is, is that this to me is a type of cinema that is beyond my grasp of comprehension as a filmmaker. It is cinema. I call it the cinema of the deranged. It it, it feels like it's a it's one step from veering off the rails completely. And, and, and I kind of, I get a real thrill from watching films where I'm like, I don't know what this filmmaker is doing. I I don't understand. But then I, I, when I, when I finish it, I know that they were completely in control of that film. And the films that I'm thinking about are, um, the Holy Mountain by Alejandro Zodorowsky, Position, even Bram Stoker's Dracula, Francis Ford Coppola's Mm -hmm. version of Dracula, Apocalypse Now, Heavenly Creatures. Those are films that, that are so close to veering off the rails that, that you're like, you know, it's kind of a thrill ride to see if the filmmaker is actually in control or is it's just nonsense. And I, when I watch this, I know that Ken Russell is completely in control of this film. He demonstrates beautifully that this is an exercise in depravity and in excess. 
and it's beautifully woven together. And and having read Huxley's novel, I I think this is a masterclass in adaptation. This is this is him taking all this disparate threads of this of this story right. that are political, cultural, historical, and he weaves them together so beautifully. And he's not just like retelling the story. He's also then escalating it into like this glorious kind of circus of events. And he's, and he's having fun. And it's just, the, you know, the, the soundtrack and the way he cuts the scenes together and that the beautiful crash zooms. I do the, like the crash zooms. The crash it, zooms are kind of dope. In, in, in the rape of Christ scene are really a demonstration of excess. And for me, that's why I, I would, I would urge you to go and find this film. And, and seek it out. And, you know, there are many people who are calling for the release of this film. They do they do play it in theaters from time to time. Screaming as, from the rooftops while masturbating. <laughs> well, there's a there's a Facebook, uh, there's a, a Twitter, an act, a very active Twitter uh, handle, free the de- hashtag free the devils, <laughs> and, um, and a Facebook uh, page as well, which is, which is, uh, every year they're calling for the release of this film, but it has, is Warner Brothers still... Even though Warner Brothers paid for this movie, they still won't release it. Guillermo del Toro has gone on record, and he works for Warner Brothers, and has slammed them on record for not releasing this film. Because Ken Russell is dead now. Um, and he and the thing that's so disappointing is that he didn't get to see people watch the original cut of his film right. and enjoy it the way he wanted to. That said, I will, again, preface this with, this is not a film for everyone. This is not, If you're a Marvel film fan and that's all you watch. I'm not pointing at you, Matt. I know you watch a lot of other films, but I'm saying this is not the film for you. And if you're someone who is easily offended, I'm just going to say it. Fuck it. Don't watch this movie. You know, this is not the movie for you. You will not enjoy it. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm also, I, I just want to say thank you to Ray for like asking us to watch this movie. I You took- did. You made little Shahir's uh, week month. Uh, he, he's been glow. I mean, it's funny. So I always watch Shahir talk about movies and depending on what we are, he's sort of excited about it or not excited about it. But he's like, I don't know if you can feel the joy coming through of him talking about this movie, but like I, I, so Ray, you did it. You did a, you did a nice thing. I, I love digging deep on movies and finding out about them and, and learning the history. And this is not a movie I I'm particularly passionate about. I just you seem I, like it. I'm passionate about like the story behind this movie, and, and I'm passionate now that people get a chance to see it because I think it's a wonderful piece of cinema. That brings me to my thing. I think it's a good movie, mm-hmm. straight up. I don't think it's worth everyone, like you said, sort of hunting down sort of specific people and specific types. And if this has piqued your interest, go fucking see it. Go go find any copy you can. Um, but I do think it falls in that interesting category, but it, 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 I'll, I'll, I'll sort of backtrack out of this of the subject matter being more interesting to me than the film itself. And that is not, but then like even, even saying that I thought that while I was watching it and then here's the difference. And this is why I think this is an ostensibly good film. Okay. We mentioned Spotlight before, right? And my whole problem with Spotlight was the most, the thing that gave Spotlight gravitas was the story that the people in the movie were telling a story about. I feel like that's taking a historical thing and not dealing, basically borrowing its importance and not doing it correctly. I'm not going to engage with you in a Spotlight no, discussion. No, no, that's I fine. That's 100% fine. Disagree. I know you disagree, but, but I'm, I'm, I want, I, but I want to sort of, I want to sort of transition it to this film. Yeah. This is a film that I do find the subject matter and the history of it far more interesting than I feel like the actual sort of craft of the film. But but the craft of the film was done in such a way that you like exactly what you said. It's that it's going to go off the rails, but you know the dude's in control of it. You know Russell's in control of it. And, And when I finished this film... I was wavering back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And, and you can say whatever you want about it. You can like it or hate it. But this dude who made this movie knew exactly what he was doing and crafted something that was his vision of this story. And that is something I really do respect when you do something sort of not. It, it, you could look at this as just sort of sensationalism, but then you're not giving him his due in a, in a strange way. And I'm I the reason I would say for people to see it is to see something that is sort of sensational, but its value is beyond that. 
I think I think you need to be the kind of viewer who can go beyond the sensation to to see what's underneath. Right. And and, and there's this, look, I've watched a lot of has, schlock. I've watched a lot of B shit and I've watched a lot of stuff that like does shit like this, but for no fucking reason. Yeah. And those things are trashy and kind of garbagey and like, you know, there's times to watch those and I don't mind watching them from time to time too. But this has this is a this is an ogre or an onion of a film, but it does have many layers. And if you like tearing things apart and sort of like in a good way and sort of deconstructing and figuring things out based on on a million other little cues and hints, this is a nice little treasure trove of a film for you. It's and it's also it's a surprisingly complex film. You know, like yeah, it's it's, it's view on religion is very complicated. Yes. Um, Although it does paint government and the way people abuse religion in a very clear way. <laughs> I'm, I mean, I'm pretty sure that's the way it wants to discuss. Yes. This. Anyway, guys, this has been probably the only podcast about the devils. No, this is a very talked about film, but not on podcasts. Not and well, I mean, because there's there are no other podcasts. Not in this reality. Yeah, uh, Shahir, when you're not going enema balls deep into a, a movie that was requested for us, where can folks find you? Uh, you can find me at shahirdaud.com. That's S H A H I R D A U D dot com, uh, where all my life and works are there. And Matt, where can we find you? You can find me at matthewkroll.com, M A T T H U W K R O L dot com for my stuff and or things. Also, Skeletor the number four P R E Z on Instagram or Emperor MSK on Twitter, or just watching my eyes bleed as I do the new. Uh, <laughs> the new playstation vr and by bleed i mean with joy uh it's fucking dope as shit actually on my instagram shahir you should check this out too one of my friends was playing it this weekend for the first time and she's literally losing her mind great and you can find us at onlymoviepodcast.com as well please write us in dre again thank you so much for for um calling out this film we hope people call out difficult and uh films like this to find i mean just even even the the search of finding this film was fun for me um, so, so thank you again. Uh, and we have many more of these to come. We've got quite a growing list of, uh, of requests. We will get to them. Uh, we will I get promise. To them. Well, one thing we're trying to do is bring in guests for, for some of those films as well. Guests as they relate to those films. But for this one, the guests were Shahir's books. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. And, uh, we will see you all next week. See you at the movies. Is that my new tag? No, no, stop it. No, I, that's this. If I had a rolled up newspaper, I swear to Christ. You bop me in the head. There's a, that's a deep cut reference to this movie if anyone can figure out what I'm talking about. Bop me in the head. Or animas. <laughs>